Well, welcome again to another service online here at Bethesda Evangelical Church. My name is David, one of the pastors here, and I am here physically, literally, actually at our beloved church building. Gave me a great sense of joy just to be here this morning, and I look forward with eager anticipation until the day, Lord willing, hopefully soon, that we can all gather here and worship God together. I so look forward to that day. Today we're continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John, so let me just invite you right now to physically grab your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 5, verses 18 through 29. John chapter 5, verses 18 through 29. Let me encourage you to be like the Bereans in Acts, where it says they search the scriptures to see for themselves. I hope you can trust my word, but I want to encourage you also to follow along in your Bible. And uh, last week we looked at the, the healing of Bethesda, the healing that happened at Bethesda with the invalid man. And today we see uh, things about Jesus' divinity and his authority as he answers his critics. So let me invite you again, John chapter 5, verses 18 through 29. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of the life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. An author shared in his book about how he was examining a straight-A seminary student who wanted to go on for further studies in the doctoral program to get his theology degree. And as this author talked to this seminary student, he was interested in him and wanted to get to know more about him. And he, he asked him a question about uh, the divinity of Jesus. He, uh, when I say divinity or divine, what I'm talking about is the fact that Jesus is God. Uh, the student would easily and quickly say that he believed that Jesus was God. And so this author said, great, tell me clearly one Bible verse where it talks about that Jesus is God. Well, the seminary student, uh, he kind of paused for a little bit, 
And then he finally blurted out a few words from the Bible, but he was not able to specifically say a single verse where it talks about that Jesus is God. Here is a seminary student who did four years of Bible college, four years of seminary, taught at a conservative seminary, and wanted to go on for further studies, but he could not say a single verse from Scripture where it mentions that Jesus is God. How about you? Can you? We're in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John. And over and over again, we've seen the divinity of Jesus come up again and again and again. This is a big issue because there are many critics and opponents of Christianity who want Jesus to just be a prophet or a nice guy or a smooth religious leader. But it's imperative that his people understand that he is fully God. He has always been fully God and always will be fully God. And here in our sermon today, in our passage today, we see the themes of Christ's divinity come up once again. In fact, we learn that Jesus' authority comes from his divinity. Stated differently, uh, Jesus' authority comes from his divinity, and as a result, we should honor him with our lives. Uh, if we're honest, we say the word authority, and many of us are resistant to the idea of authority. Perhaps you had a bad experience, a parent, a boss, a pastor, Perhaps you don't like the idea of uh, authority and negative images come into your mind or you really love your freedom and independence and you're, you're kind of skeptical of those in charge or those who have more power than others. Power and authority are actually good things given by God to help other people flourish. And as we'll see in this passage, Jesus' authority is meant to give us a sense of blessing, not a sense of burden in any way. The passage can be broken down in three sections. Uh, Jesus imitates his father, Jesus receives honor like his father, and Jesus has power from his father. So we start in the first one, that Jesus imitates the father. In the beginning part of the passage, we're told that the Jews, religious leaders, were trying to kill Jesus. And just as a side note, people don't try to kill you if you are a huge people pleaser. People don't try to kill you if you're the kind of person that always tries to make everyone happy. People don't try to kill you if you're always sort of extremely nice to everyone in the same way. People always try to kill threats. And Jesus was a threat to the religious leaders and the Jews because they saw that he was gaining popularity and he was declaring himself to be God. Uh, look with me, verse 18 says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we're giving specifically two reasons why the Jews were trying to kill Jesus. If you can remember last week, Jesus healed someone uh, in our passage at Bethesda. Not this beautiful, wonderful church, but a pool in Bethesda, chapter 5. He healed an invalid man who had been hurt for 38 years, but it happened on the Sabbath day. And if you can remember the Ten Commandments, the fourth one is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath day was a huge deal back then and is still a big deal today. And it was morally binding that you you, um, and, and so when, when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath that went against some of their violations, according to the religious leaders, 
However, Sabbath was created for man. Man wasn't created for Sabbath, as other scriptures point out. And it is better to do good and to heal on the Sabbath than to ignore someone who's clearly in pain. So Jesus did nothing wrong there at all. And the second reason was that Jesus uh, declared himself to be God or equal with God, making himself on the same level. So the religious leaders see that he heals someone on the Sabbath. They see Christ talking about himself, that he is God, and he is. And they get very frustrated and they try to kill him. So much of what Jesus says in this passage is a direct response to his opponents about those two claims. And Jesus starts by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Notice Jesus starts by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you. In the Old Testament, the prophets would say, Thus says the Lord. And then they would say whatever they felt like the Lord had told them to say. But Jesus doesn't say, Thus says the Lord. He doesn't need to say that because he is the Lord. Everything he says has authority. His his words automatically have authority. And here what Jesus is doing is he gives us a unique behind-the-scenes look at his relationship with God the Father. Uh, we've mentioned that the divinity of Christ, that Christ being fully God, is one of the themes of John's Gospel, but also the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus is talking about his relationship with God the Father, that he gets to see the actions of the Father, that he imitates the actions of the Father, that somehow he has this supernatural, divine access and relationship with God the Father that ordinary human beings cannot have. And even more, shockingly, surprisingly, notably, Jesus says that he cannot do anything apart from his Father. So we learn already in this passage that Jesus sees the Father's in a special way. He imitates the Father, and he cannot do anything apart from his Father. They have a special, tight relationship. You could say, like Father, like Son. Like Father, like Son. We have a 16th month old who is a true treasure from the Lord. We love him so much. And even though he is in the toddler stage... Uh, I can tell my son is already noticing me and trying to imitate me in several ways. Very intuitive. And you know, my wife and I, we pray before we eat dinner, and then we say, Amen. Then he always follows up afterwards by saying, Amen. Um, You know, sometimes I will say a word, and I don't even know that he's listening to me, and he hears me say a word, and then he blurts out that word himself. So now I got to be careful about what I say because he might be listening to me and he might mirror my actions. Sometimes when there's a truck or a car that comes by in our neighborhood, I'll, I'll go and kind of look out the window to see what's going on. And quickly thereafter, I'll see my little man right by me looking out the window too. Sometimes his facial expression is the exact same facial expression that I have on my face. 
It's really a cute thing. It's an adorable thing to see him wanting to follow my footsteps and imitate me in some way. That's kind of what Jesus is getting at here, that he, he loves his father, he sees his father, and he's imitating his father. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's not arrogant. He's saying, I'm, I'm imitating Christ, and I want to encourage you to follow me. Could you say the same thing about your life? Are you the kind of person that sets a godly example for other people to follow? Or are you that kind of person that talks to Christian talk on Sundays, but your life is devoid of Christ throughout the week? It's very important for those who follow Christ for their actions to follow their words. None of us are perfect. We make mistakes. We confess our sin and we repent of our sin and move on. But there should be a standard for Christian living, and that standard is to be godly and to be holy. You don't need formal positional authority to do this. It's not like only it's only the job for the pastors or only the job for the ministers or those who are um, serve in a high leadership position on, at church. Anyone who's a follower of Jesus should seek to honor him with their lives and set a good example for others to follow. We move on in the passage and we learn more. We learn that the Father loves the Son and that the Father is going to show Jesus greater works, says that right there in the text. And the greater works specifically in this context is the work that Jesus has, the power and the authority that he has to raise the dead, to summon all humans to the final resurrection, to give life. And this is done, it says, so that others will marvel. The word marvel there can be translated amazed. Remember, Jesus is talking to his opponents, so what he's trying to show them, he's unpacking that he is God, and that even some of his works that he's going to do is for them to marvel. But marveling and believing are not the same thing. Some people marveled at Jesus and were astonished by him, but they never put their faith in him. The call all throughout the Gospel of John is not just to be a fan of Jesus, but to be a follower of Jesus. Not just to be impressed with him, but to put your faith in him. It's amazing to consider verse 21. I love the way this expression says it. It really stood out to me when I was reading this passage. Verse 21 says, look with me there. It says, the Son gives life to whom he will. ESV. NIV says it this way. The Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The NASB says it this way. The Son gives life to whom he wishes. This is an amazing thought. If you, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith and trust in him, that means that the Son of God, Jesus himself, was pleased, he willed, he wanted to give you eternal life. If this sinks deeply into your heart, it really won't matter much what else happens in life. Of course, we want to have success and good health. We want to see our kids walking with the Lord. And all of us have ambitions and dreams that we want to see accomplished. And all of those things can be good things. But many of those things that we desire are not promised anywhere in Scripture. But here what Jesus says is that if you are saved, if you are a Christian, is because 
He wanted to save you. As Matt Chandler says, God does not regret saving you. That even when you're struggling with sin or when you've turned your back on him for a season or when you're struggling with doubt or bitterness, that God loves you and cares for you and that he was pleased to give you eternal life. If, if that sinks into your heart, for all the times that you felt overlooked or forgotten or not picked for something, that will transform the way that you view your relationship with God and how you interact with other people. It will make you more secure, more secure in Christ, knowing that you don't need other people to satisfy you or give you fulfillment or to affirm you all the time. No, no, no. It's Christ who decided to save you, and he wanted to do it. It was not a burden for him. It was a delight to do so. Next, we see in the passage that Jesus receives honor like the Father. Verse 22 and verse 23 says this, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Judgment belongs to Jesus. That's what this means. Uh, although the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're equal in divinity, they have distinct roles, and here specifically, judgment goes to Jesus. The culture uses the expression judgment day, that's fine. The Bible uses more expression like the final day or the last day. And it's the day in which Jesus will judge people. If, you, if you're a Christian, you're totally safe because of Christ. This should be a sense of comfort to you, knowing that the one who loves you, who died for you, whose righteousness has been given to you, is also the one who's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God remains on you. And the omniscient Jesus, omniscient means all-knowing, sees all words and actions and heart motives against him. And he keeps track. So what you need to do is believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. That he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. And if you do that, all your sins are wiped away forever. And Judgment Day will be a day of joy. But if you, if you don't, that will be a terrifying thing. It says in Scripture that it is a terrifying thing to stand in the hand in the way of the Lord, to fall under the wrath of God. There are many purposes for Jesus being a judge, but it says here that all may honor him. So, so Jesus is the one who executes judgment, and as a result of this, we should honor him. That word honor can be translated as have special regard for, or to revere, or to set a price on. Once again, with all of this terminology about knowing the Father and being the judge and getting honor what Jesus is trying to show his opponents. Like, hey, yeah, you know that, that healing at Bethesda and me talking about that I'm God? The reason why I do that and say what I do is because I am God. He's trying to reveal to his opponents that he has authority to do what he's doing because of his divinity. So it says here that we should honor Jesus. So any religion, and there are a lot of them, that do not recognize that Jesus is God and worthy of honor, who is the God, not just a God, is a dead religion, is a false religion. It's leading people astray. 
So Christ must be recognized as God and he must be honored. A friend of mine who served in the Marines, in infantry for four years, so he wasn't guy on the back pressing buttons, not a diss to anyone who does that, that's very much needed, but he was on the front lines, on foot, in combat, with weapons, and using them regularly. And after 9-11, he was sent to places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And before going over there, he had a bad hip. But after uh, being there, you know, anyone who goes overseas, they, they sort of prepare themselves for knowing that something potentially good could happen, something bad could happen to them. But they go anyway because they love their country and they love their people and they want to fight for them. So before going over there, he had a really bad hip. Comes back, his hip is actually worse, way worse. Uh, a few of his friends died overseas fighting for our country. Uh, Eighty of his friends were wounded. And uh, when he came, you know, I'm always trying to ask him stories of questions about what happened and try not to be too intrusive, but sometimes I can't help myself because I'm really curious. I want to know, you know, not, not every day that I have a friend that has uh, led and served to that degree. Uh, but when he came back to the States, he, uh, he had a couple hip replacement surgeries and neither one of them really went well. And now he is in his mid to late 30s and he walks with a cane. And not sure if he's ever not going to be able to not walk with a cane. You know, he recently spent the night at our house. And I was um, able to help him with his bags, carry his bags, going up and down the stairs. It's, it can be a lot of work for him. I recently heard someone give a speech about him. And they, they said stuff like, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you've done. Because he fought for our country, he risked his life, he was on the front lines. Now when he comes back home to his country, we rightly honor him. We honor him through our words and through our actions. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ did not leave one country to just go overseas, but he left heaven, perfect heaven, to come down to earth, to be born in a manger and live the perfect life and die. Not just get wounded. He didn't just get wounded for one country, but he died on the cross for sins and rose from the dead for all countries, for anyone who would believe in him. And as a result of Jesus' sacrifice and him being their highest authority, he commands us to honor him. How do we honor him? It's similar to what I just said with my friend. We honor him with our words, with our deeds. Honoring Jesus looks like obeying the Bible. Maybe you've been hurt by someone in authority. Could be parent. Perhaps a parent was really nice to the pastors on Sunday morning, but throughout the week they were verbally abusive or hurtful in many ways. Could have been a boss who micromanaged you, stabbed you in the back, tried to get you fired. Could have been a pastor of some way, shape, or form. Talk about honor and authority and giving respect, especially in my generation. 
there could be a lot of hesitation for doing that. We tend to be a little bit more skeptical with those in charge. Not saying it's right, just saying that could be a weakness of my generation. But the good news is that when it comes to the Lord Jesus, Jesus doesn't make any mistakes. He will never stab you in the back. He will never be hypocritical towards you. He will never leave you hanging. So any resistance that you feel towards Christ because of bad experience that you've had with someone else in authority, or maybe you hear about God the Father and you didn't have a good father, and you, it's difficult for you to see God as a father. Any, that can be totally understandable. But you should know that Jesus, if you're a Christian, is 100% for you. And he's never going to let you down. And all honor is due to him. And you can sort of let go of any of those presumptions that you have and trust him and honor him with your life. Verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is good news. This is good news for those who obey this verse. Jesus says, Here's my word. Hears here does not literally mean merely listening. You can go to church for 70 years, sit in the same pew, give money, listen to the preacher, and not truly be a follower of Jesus. Hears in this context means not just listening, but believing and obeying. Those who believe Jesus and that evidence is the obedience says here, they do not come into judgment. The word judgment there is probably better translated condemned. In other words, if you're a Christian, there's no condemnation for you because of what Christ has done for you. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Although we must live godly lives because Jesus is the judge and he, he, he sees and he knows and he expects and demands obedience and honor with your words and actions towards him, we could also know that there's no condemnation because of what Christ has done. So on that day, as we live godly, holy lives, we can trust that there will be no condemnation, no eternal condemnation for those who have trusted in Christ. Truly is good news. It's really a scandal to think about it that Christ does the work that he dies, that he rises, and he chooses you, and he loves you, and he pursues you, and there's no condemnation for what he has done for you. These are the kind of gospel truths that we need to let grip our hearts, because if we do, it'll change everything about how we interact with people around us. Final thing we see in this passage is that Jesus has authority, or more specifically, he has resurrection authority and power. And you can note throughout the passage the many references, either implicitly or explicitly, to Christ's divinity, that, that he is God. I'll recap them for you. In verse 19, we learn that Jesus gets a special inside look to see what the Father does. Verse 21, Jesus has the authority to give life to whomever he wants. Verse 22, all power to exercise judgment is given to Jesus. Verse 24, believing in Jesus grants eternal life. 
In verses 28 and 29, Jesus has the power to raise from the dead. Everywhere in this passage do we see references to Christ's divinity and the authority that he has. In the last few verses, Jesus reminds his opponents of, that he has life in himself and that he has authority to exercise judgment. He's recapping some of the things that he has already said. But the last two verses there, we, we find new material. And the last two verses there are very powerful because Jesus talks about what he's going to do when he comes back. So when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Advent, which means coming. Christians also believe about the second coming when Jesus will come back. In previous generations, uh, people talked about the second coming of Jesus all the time. Uh, 18th century, 19th century, beginning of 20th century. But here in the past, I don't know, 50 years or so, people have not talked about it that much because so many people are just so weird and bizarre when it comes to the second coming of Christ. Um, I had uh, someone in a previous ministry context try to convince me that he knew when Jesus was coming back. I didn't say this to them because I, I didn't feel like I could, but Jesus himself says that he doesn't know when he's going to come back. So if you say you know when he's coming back, what you're saying is that you have more knowledge in God. That's arrogant. That's not, that's not a humble thing to do, right? So, but, so because of these bad examples, we've kind of gotten away from it, but if you look in Scripture, the second coming of Jesus is actually something that's supposed to produce hope, a, a sense of joy. Um, I, I personally know a few people who have passed away here very recently, and so it's got me thinking more about the afterlife and heaven and uh, Christ and his return, and I'm finding that my heart is thinking more about eschatology, which means the last things of what Christ will do. And all of this is not meant so that we can debate about rules and when Christ will come back, but it's meant to produce a sense of godliness and hopefulness in us. And here in the last two verses, Jesus says that he has power to raise from the dead, which is likely a foreshadow a couple chapters later to him raising Lazarus from the dead. But uh, when G what Jesus is saying here, um, let me just paraphrase some of these things. He says this, when he comes back from the power of his word, those who have done good will go to the resurrection of life, i.e. the new heavens and new earth. Those who have done evil will go to the resurrection of death, i.e. hell. Uh, now, let me be crystal clear here. Jesus says those who have done good, that seems to be a notable contribution to John's gospel here. Uh, what he's not saying is that good works save you. If you're a Christian, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus. But as it's been said, that faith should never be alone, and it's accompanied by good works. So good works do not save you, but good works, anything you do to glorify God, is evidence that you are saved. And Jesus is talking about things like heaven and hell and the afterlife. And many Christians think that when they die, they go to heaven and stay there forever. It is gloriously true that if you're in Christ, when you die, you go to heaven. Yes, so true. No more sin. No more sickness, no more Satan, and you're with God and his people. That's totally true. But here's the deal. You don't stay there forever. What this passage teaches and what other passages teaches is that 
when a Christian dies, theologians differentiate between the intermediate state and the eternal state. If those words confuse you, think of the temporary state and the permanent state. You die, you go to the intermediate state, which is heaven, right? But when Christ returns, and this is what Jesus is talking about in this passage, when he returns, he's going to come with all of his people in heaven, and those who are living on earth uh, will meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, and somehow Jesus is going to come down and transform this earth into perfection where once again there will be no sin, no sickness, uh, and we are with God's people forever. It is greater than anything we could possibly imagine, but our, our permanent home is the new heavens and new earth. So yes, die, go to heaven, but when Christ comes back, we are going to dwell on the new heavens and new earth forever. And so what Christ is saying here is that when he comes, those people who are in the grave will hear his voice because of his resurrection power, and then he will um, usher in the final sentencing of the final judgment, uh, those who have done good or those who are in Christ, to the new heavens and the new earth, those who have done evil, those who are not Christians, to eternal condemnation forever. And this is true only because the authority that Jesus has. This past week, I got a barbecue grill. My dad actually bought it for me, picked it up with a friend, uh, got it out of the truck. Almost actually dropped it when we got out of the truck and it fell on the floor and put it back together. We put it in the place where we wanted to put it. And now I'm thinking about various things I want to grill. Um, you know, spring and summertime are perfect times to be grilling various things on the grill. Um, and I ran into this company called Hebrew National, and um, here, here's what they say on their website. That they make 100% kosher beef hot dogs, and they're very passionate about it because they write these words on their website. Our strict process makes sure that every hot dog is made with premium cuts of 100% kosher beef because in a world that feels like it has less rules, we think hot dogs should still have some. Those are some people passionate about their hot dogs. That caught my attention, but it definitely did not inspire me in any way. But um, what, what did inspire me, and they used to do this on their packaging, on their meat. I'm not sure if they do this anymore. But they, they live by a slogan in their company called, uh, the, the slogan is this. We answer to a higher authority. We answer to a higher authority. That's exactly the slogan that the church should live by. We answer to a higher authority, and that authority is Jesus, who is the judge, who commands and, ex and expects his people to live godly lives. One day, we will be judged by him, but because of his sacrifice, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to adore you and worship you. Help us to understand more of this passage. Help us to live godly and holy lives in light of the forthcoming judgment. Help us to imitate you and help us to be a good example for others to follow. Help us to honor Jesus with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.